0: Oh, hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. This is issue 129, if you can believe it. And you find us in that weird interregnum period between Christmas and New Year where no one's quite sure what day it is. Everyone's trying to work out whether they ought to have gone into the office this morning. And absolutely everyone has eaten far too much cheese also, there are things in the fridge that you don't remember cooking, but they're definitely in there left over, and you're wondering where they came from. And as is my fickle want, I have decided I'm going to do something that is different than what I'd planned. I do have a two, in fact, two pre-recorded episodes, which I'm just going to keep in reserve now. One is on SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and the other is on the space program, specifically the uh, Mercury-Gemini-Apollo era of space program. And um, I'm going to hold those in reserve for the next time I'm away, because I find myself back at the mic in time to do some seasonal chitter chatter about seasonal geeky stuff. And so we're going to start with the return of something that was becoming, I think, a British Christmas tradition, but then was, well, frankly, quite rudely snatched away from us and which we now have back. I'm talking, of course, about this. Because after an absence for the Chibnall years, we have our Doctor Who Christmas specials back. And, do you know what? I I actually quite liked the New Year Doctor Who thing, just because Christmas Day is really busy. I'm a grown-up now, and I've got grown-up stuff to do. And, you know, that washing up didn't do itself. So there's a bunch of stuff you've got to do on Christmas Day. And, of course, it's a family day. And, you honestly, if you say, right, guys, I'm just going to disappear for an hour and a half and ignore you all because I want to go and watch that silly TV show that I like – It it doesn't necessarily go down well, which means, uh, in common with a lot of people, I didn't watch The Church on Ruby Road when it aired live on BBC One, which I would have liked to do. But I didn't, because I'm mature and grown up, and there were other things that needed doing until I was doing those. In fact, I actually watched it on the iPlayer on Boxing Day, a full day late. Of course, it's Christmas and I wasn't on social media, so I was not spoiled. And speaking of which, there are going to be massive, massive spoilers from, well, roundabout now. So the traditional warning shall follow. Spoilers! Spoilers! So you have been warned, although I've got to be honest, this many days after Christmas Day, it's a Christmas Day special. If you cared, you'd have seen it, I'm pretty sure. by now. So, you know, but be advised if you haven't yet. Spoilers coming up from now. So I didn't I didn't love it as much as I thought I was going to, if I'm honest. Let's just get that straight up. I think it was it was very clear, very, very clear that it was not made for me. And that's fine. And I don't have a problem with that. There are a couple of things I'm going to flag up right at the start. It got just over four million viewers on the day, which is, well, not very much when you compare it to the glory days of New Doctor Who. But if you compare it to everything else on Christmas Day, it was beaten by two shows. It was beaten by Strictly Christmas Special. And at, at this point, Strictly is a ratings juggernaut. It's certainly that show that everyone gets around the telly to watch. This sort of unifying family show for Christmas Day. So, Of course, it was beaten by Strictly. And it was beaten by The King's Speech which I'm going to confess I was a little bit surprised by because I don't remember anybody watching it. Although this is the first year I ever remember my father-in-law making a special point of watching it. So maybe lots of other people did too. Either way, third, the third most popular program on the telly on Christmas Day. That's not bad. So as is often the case People who are looking at the raw numbers and going, oh, you see, Doctor Who's gone woke and now it's all dead. uh, It's nonsense. It's just nonsense. Uh, I don't think, for example, that Coronation Street is losing viewers because it's gone woke. Uh, But Coronation Street didn't make the top 10 recently. So, yeah, viewing patterns are changing. People are not watching TV live. All kinds of things are happening with ratings. And so, actually, 4 million-odd, pretty darned respectable, I think. And, of course, we also have the data of people who streamed it either in the UK on the BBC iPlayer or around the world on Disney Plus still to come. So who knows how many people actually watched it. So that's that. It's a Doctor Who, as popular as it ever was, I suspect. And I'm just going to say right up front, this is obviously Shuti Gatwa's first outing as the Doctor, the guy who is in the TARDIS, the main dude. And He's great, isn't he? I mean, just, just fantastic. Or, as he might put it, time travellers are great. I think there is uh, there are a couple of things that long-time Doctor Who viewers are, are going to need to reconcile. Uh, since the Doctor came back in 2005, they have been a tortured soul. a a, a person who has seen terrible things, a person who is clearly, clearly, absolutely failing to deal with great trauma. That is the doctor that Russell T. Davis, remember, it was him, gave us back in 2005. And that's who the doctor has been all of this time since then. And You know, whatever face the Doctor was wearing, whether it was Eccleston or Tennant or Smith or Capaldi or Whittaker, they have been secretive and closed in and looking for redemption. And there's none of that in Gatwa. I think that is what has been left behind with the 15th Doctor, the 14th Doctor. What number is it now? The 14th Doctor. That's what's been left behind with the 14th Doctor living in the TARDIS in Donna Noble's back garden. That's all gone. As the 15th Doctor says to the 14th Doctor back in the Giggle or Doctor Who Special Number 3 if you're watching this on Disney+, and more of that later, the 15th Doctor is fine now because the 14th Doctor did the healing. And, yeah, I think that's great because... What we have here in the Doctor Who Christmas special, or Doctor Who special number four, if you're watching on Disney Plus, more about that later. What you've got here is a new beginning. This is probably one of the best jumping back on points for Doctor Who that there's been, well, since Rose, really. I mean, the, the start of the Matt Smith era, the, you know, Fish Fingers and Custard and all of that. Um, the girl who waited. I, I, I think that is is perhaps as good at jumping on point, but this is clearly intended as a brand new start. And the fact that the next episode of Doctor Who, which will be shown in the spring, is labelled season one, episode one. And so, if you are an international viewer coming to Doctor Who for the first time because you've seen it on Disney Plus, well then, this is your first Doctor. This is the first doctor as far as you are concerned and more about that later too so yeah initial impressions then Gatwa brilliant he's doing a really great job when Ruby Sunday first sees him dancing in the club in that kilt and spinning around and dancing you'll note he's dancing on his own but also joining in with other people this is a happy doctor this is a doctor who is up for a laugh who can enjoy themselves, and I am very much digging that. It's a nice change, apart from anything else. So, let's get into the story, and let's hit some of the main beats. So, this is where the spoilers are coming in. We'll we'll have some opinion about it all in a bit. So, what happens? Well, we get a little bit of narration, first of all. We see a little child, a baby, an infant, being delivered outside the church on Ruby Road on Christmas Eve, 19 years ago, which, just as an aside, is exactly one week before the 10th Doctor wishes Rose Tyler a Happy New Year in his final Doctor Who story, The End of Time. Feeling old yet? Because I do. We see a hooded cloaked woman, appears to be a woman at least, leaving this baby outside the church. We see the doctor the 15th doctor with a tear rolling down his cheek leaving the TARDIS and apparently seeing this woman walk away we see a priest in full Christmas Eve midnight mass style vestments come out of the church find the baby pick it up take it inside we see that and then we cut to now and we see Millie Gibson as Ruby Sunday. That same child talking on the television to Davina McCall, who, if you didn't know this, now I only know this because I've occasionally seen this on uh, repeat on some of the Freeview channels that are quite a long way down the listing. Davina McCall, best known, of course, for presenting Big Brother, uh, although I like her from Street Date back in the 90s. She's also the co-host of Long Lost Family, a show which helps people who have been separated from their biological families, find biological parents, biological siblings, that kind of thing. And although that show is never referenced, because it is, of course, on ITV, that's clearly the show that Ruby Sunday is going to be part of. She's being interviewed and sort of telling her story to Davina McCall, how she was found outside the church. She was called Ruby after the road the church is on. And then she was adopted by her foster mother, which is where her last name comes from, Sunday. And so she's now Ruby Sunday. But she doesn't know anything about her birth parents, about her birth mother. And, you know, she's interested to know. And so she's doing this now. We also see that things are not running smoothly for this TV production. There's some kind of interference on the sound. And then we see tiny little hands messing with people's coffee and pulling cables tight and Things fall over and Ruby's almost hit by a falling lamp. But then we move on and we see the doctor again. Ruby's in a club uh, watching people dance. Not dancing herself, I notice. And her eye is drawn across the dance floor to a guy who is very flamboyantly dancing in a vest and kilt, which is an interesting combination, which I don't think I could pull off. He can, though, because he is the doctor and he's having a rare old time. Is he also keeping an eye on Ruby? I'm not sure. But when she knocks over her gin and tonic, he somehow is there to catch it, before disappearing once again into the night. Just as Ruby is leaving, we see the Doctor watching her and her friends as they get into a taxi. And they're driving along in the back of their taxi, and a giant snowman appears to be about to fall on them from the roof of the... Building, it is Christmas after all. This giant snowman is not a weird giant snowman, it's just a big Christmas decoration attached to the side of a building. And we see little hands, little hands again, unfastening things. And the the head of this snowman is about to fall, but the doctor zaps the the things with his actually rather funky new sonic screwdriver. More about that later, too. Probably the lights go green and the taxi speeds off. But well, Ruby is now safe because the lights have changed. Now, a parent with a pram. He's crossing the street and the head might fall on her. So again, the doctor sprints forward and saves everybody. And the the head drops on him and he comes out of the eye. And he's a little bit miffed that she's pushing a pram at that time in the morning. And she shows it's Christmas presents. She's quite miffed with him, which is, you know, a comedic touch, I suppose. Then we get a great little conversation between a, a very young, very green police officer who's seen this happen and the doctor. And there's a couple of things I liked about this. First of all, I learned from the InVision commentary that this scene was added in. It was not part of the original script. Disney, apparently, wanted a bit more of the Doctor earlier on in the the show. And so Russell T. Davis decided he thought that was a good idea, too, and wrote this scene in. Now, I'm not sure I like Disney having that kind of say, is all I'm saying, as it happens. It kind of works. I quite like it because, also in this scene, we get we get to see the Doctor interacting with just a regular civilian. The police officer is, you know, "Are you all right, sir?" and uh, I, "I need to file a report. Can I take your name?" and so he tells it, you know, "Name the Doctor." And then he says, "I just want to go home," and he indicates the TARDIS, and I like that because that identifies that you know the TARDIS is home for the Doctor. Wherever the TARDIS is, that's home. And there's also a little bit of banter. The doctor tells the aforementioned police officer that um, don't worry, she's going to say yes. And this seems like some kind of magical prophecy. But in fact, the doctor Sherlock Holmes is it and shows, look, my sonic screwdriver detector, there's a nine carat diamond in your pocket. That means you're going to propose to someone. I'm assuming it's a woman because most men wouldn't go for a diamond. So and of course, she's going to say yes. It's Christmas Eve. You could have waited for the sales to buy that ring and you didn't. You bought it now, which means you want to in- to propose on Christmas Day, which means you are really confident she's going to say yes. So she's going to say yes. You know, that's that's a that's a proper, you know, that's going to work. And I can't argue with the logic, basically. And that's, of course, the kids alluded, but, you know, there's that. Anyway, so now get to see Ruby's family, her adopted mum, who I'm just going to call mum. I think we are told what her name is. and I'm, I'm dashed if I can remember it. Her grandma who clearly is something of a comedic turn. Her grandma is called Cherry, that's Cherry Sunday, and much like the grandparents in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, she doesn't appear to ever get out of bed, and what she really, really wants is a cup of tea, which she never gets. But we join this little family up in their attic apartments in a three-storey terraced house that's been converted into flats, and we join them at a time of great excitement, because it's Christmas Eve, and they're getting a baby. One more foster child for Ruby's mum to take in. We learn that she's had many foster children. 38? Is it 38 or 33? She says. I'm not good at numbers. Anyway, more than 30 over time. Although Ruby's the only one she adopted. Ruby is the only one, we are told, who stayed. And we see the social worker come round and drop off the child. And then Ruby's mum goes and does a bit of shopping, leaving Ruby alone. And she jokes as Ruby, as she leaves that the only advice that Ruby needs to follow, the only instruction that Ruby needs to follow is don't lose the baby. And of course, the baby promptly disappears. And it appears that the baby's been taken through the skylight. And so Ruby obviously follows. where She sees some strange creatures taking the child up a ladder. So she grabs onto the bottom of the ladder. As the ladder starts to lift and move forward as though it's dang- dangling on the, the, the bottom of some helicopter or something. And as she's sort of flying along, hanging onto this ladder for grim grim death, she sees the Doctor running along the roofline. She turns around the ladder, and they climb together up through the aid of some magic gloves, sorry, very scientific gloves, and they end up in a flying ship, which is crewed by goblins. Mm, yes, precious. And yes, don't at me, I know that Gollum isn't actually a goblin, but these goblins are very Gollum-like. This is where the Doctor and Ruby introduce themselves to each other and try to figure out what's going on, and the the Doctor very quickly briefs Ruby, yeah these are goblins, yes they're going to eat the baby, yes they'll probably eat us too, we need to sort this out, and the Sonic Screw never doesn't work because As the Doctor points out, screwdrivers need screws, and this ship is held together by ropes. Which apparently is a language, and the Doctor has to very quickly learn it. And Honestly, I'm going to gloss over this whole goblin thing, because I hated it. There needed to be some kind of monster MacGuffin to drive the plot. That's what these goblins are. Did they have to be goblins? Did they have to be in a flying ship? For my money, a little bit too fantasy and not enough science fiction-y for me. And... Also, the set, The Goblin Ship, felt like a Disney set. It didn't feel like a Doctor Who set. And uh, I didn't really like it. And I didn't like the song. I'm sorry I didn't. I know it's been a massive hit on YouTube. I know it's it's taking the world by storm and so on. I didn't like it. It was clearly written by somebody who doesn't understand pop songs, which is fine. Murray Gold is a a composer of orchestral style scores. He's not a pop musician. Uh, But I didn't like it, didn't like it, didn't like it at all. I didn't like the Goblin Band. I didn't like Janice Goblin. I didn't understand why they were playing modern sounding music on those instruments. Those instruments clearly were not producing those sounds. It just didn't work for me. Didn't like it at all. I I think I might have made that clear. Now, do I care? Not really. It's a Christmas special. Christmas specials do goofy things. It's it's fine, really. I, I, I don't ever want to see these Goblins again, though. So there's there's that. I didn't mind the Doctor and Ruby joining in the singing. I thought that was quite a nice touch. Uh, the Doctor can clearly improvise, and Millie Gibson was playing Ruby as someone who was desperately floundering for to make things rhyme because she'd realised what the Doctor was doing and that the song was distracting the goblins. And so uh, fine, fine, fine. Just didn't like it. So we're going to gloss over it. And they save the baby and they return the baby home. Just in time for everyone to think nothing's happened. But then. The doctor is trying to explain things in a way that won't cause problems to Ruby's mum and suddenly realises that Ruby's not there and nobody can remember her and everything's changed. Ruby's mum used to be, at the start, you know, when we first met her, she was happy, go lucky, she was cheerful, she'd adopted all these, or fostered all these kids. And you know, she clearly loved them and she loved being a foster mum. And she took pictures of them and they're uh, like those kids were her family and she was still in touch with loads of them. And you know, although grandma never got out of bed, she was, you know, clearly you're know, playing the cantankerous granny. And you know, right like, was actually quite happy and cheerful herself, really. And there was a bit of flirting with the doctor went on and all of that sort of thing. And suddenly things have changed. And it's really beautifully done. Okay, the lighting. And the colour palettes change. And suddenly Ruby's mum is quite cynical. And she's not fostered all of these kids. She's only fostered a few. And she's very cynical about it. And she's you know, instead of this, this baby arriving on Christmas Eve being a joy, she's ah, oh, it's alright, pain in the neck. I ruined my Christmas, I was looking forward to it as well. And yeah, she says, you know, eight hundred quid 800, 800 quid a kid is the reason that she's a Fostering these kids, you know, it isn't a, a, a vocation for her anymore. And grandma is now, you know, instead of sitting up in bed being all like pretend cantankerous, she genuinely seems quite shrunken and she's curled up in bed and clearly unhappy. And it's a very unhappy house, and all the photos off the fridge have gone. And now there's just Chinese takeaway menus. And the doctor realises that nobody roams Ruby. And Ruby must be the difference. The light that Ruby brought into this family's life, these two women's life, has gone. And what has been Ruby's mum's purpose for 19 years suddenly is gone. And all the joy has been sucked out of that life. So just in that one moment, we see illustrated what kind of a person Ruby Sunday is. And I think that's really important. And it's, beautiful. it's just beautifully done. It's really beautiful writing. And the Doctor... We see that the Doctor is crying, as is Ruby's mum. And, you know, the Doctor says, well, if you don't care, why are you crying? And Ruby's mum doesn't know. The Doctor does, though. And I-, I like the way those emotions are shown. This is the first time we've seen a Doctor, like since the Doctor came back, who has been honest about their emotions. And that's, that's a nice change. But also, the emotions seem slightly divorced from his intellect. It's... Always important to remember, the Doctor is alien, and this is one of the ways that the Doctor is shown to be alien in this thing. He's experiencing these emotions, but they're secondary to his thought process. And he realises what's happened. These these goblins, which we know are, he won't have it that they're time travellers, because as previously mentioned, time travellers are great, like the best, like wow. These goblins do have the ability to move through time, and he realises that's what they've done. They've gone back to that Christmas Eve 19 years ago and taken Ruby as a baby to replace the one. That Ruby rescued, and so he goes back and he saves her, brings her back, drops her off, and he is setting off to leave. And Ruby's trying to figure out. Hang on, what's going on just happened? What did he tell me? Um, there'd been a joke about Houdini, which she thinks is quite gay, and realizes that Houdini was like the 1920s. So, so how is that possible? And what kind of a doctor is he anyway? And who? What what did he mean about going back to save her? And all of that? she she doesn't quite figure it out, but she rushes downstairs and rushes out of the door to a quite surprisingly sunny Christmas Eve afternoon. I'm just going to be a little bit cynical. I'm fairly sure they filmed this in July and they must have been sweltered. But she sees the Doctor's TARDIS and the door opens and she looks in and sees it's bigger on the inside and she steps out and she walks around. She goes into the TARDIS, and there is the Doctor waiting for her. Looking fairly cool, gotta say. And then off they go. The new era of Doctor Who begins. So that's roughly the story, and the story actually isn't all that important, which is why I don't really care about the goblins. What matters is all the rest of it, all the character beat. And and they were perfect. I mean, they were just spot on. I mean, first of all, we get we get a doctor who is happy, who is energetic, who is mysterious and who we still don't know quite a lot about. So there's a lot still to be revealed. I was unfamiliar with Millie Gibson until I saw this episode, and I like her. I think she's going to be good. What I particularly liked is that she's a kid. She's not a twenty-something playing nineteen. She's a nineteen-year-old playing nineteen. And as a as a as a teacher who's had quite a lot to do with nineteen-year-olds, she she behaves and reacts to things like a 19-year-old he is convincing in that sense of wonder and recklessness that teenagers have and so i'm i'm very interested to see where they take this character and what they do with her i i, I think i think she's got a lot of potential i was cynical at the start i thought she was perhaps a little too young And I'm, again, very happy, as I have been before, to admit that I was wrong about that. I also thought she was going to be a little bit too much like Billy Piper as Rose, and I think that's clearly not going to be the case. So again, so far, so good. I mean, obviously, there's a long way to go yet. I may have changed my mind by the end of the first episode of season one, but so far, so far, so good. Then there are some interesting character beats here that I'm looking forward to see where they go with them and I think I think we have to talk about Anita Dobson now. Now if you've been living under a rock for the last what 45 years or so you may not know who Anita Dobson is. If you haven't you will know the following things. First of all she's Angie off of EastEnders. You know from way back in the beginning when she said I'm Angie. If you really want to know runs the Vic I do. And you know there was some drama after that. And of course, she's married to Brian May, astrophysicist and guitarist of Queen. Here, she's Mrs Flood, the sort of next door neighbour to the Sunday family and character of mystery, I think it's fair to say, because she knows something. We see her first complaining to Ahmed, who I assume is another neighbour, although we don't actually see where he lives, but she's complaining to Ahmed Because she says that Ahmed must have left this big, dirty, great police box on the pavement in her way. He obviously denies all knowledge of it. And she does sort of say, you know, she explains to Ruby what a police box is, because obviously you don't see them in London anymore because they're not necessary. She Seems a little odd, a little off, a little paranoid, even. When Ahmed says, you know, why do you think I left it there? She kind of says, yeah, because I see you looking at me. I know you don't like me. And. Uh, there's something a little bit sinister in her at that point. Later, we see her walking home down the street, carrying some shopping. As The TARDIS dematerialises when the doctor goes off to rescue baby Ruby. We see her drop her shopping in surprise. Deemably, we think at the time, because she's watching something dematerialise before her eyes, which is odd. But then, when Ruby is investigating the TARDIS, she's very encouraging and quite kindly, she, she, she seems very fond of Ruby and encourages Ruby to go into the TARDIS. And as the door closes behind her, this Flood very softly says, Good luck, Ruby, and seems genuinely pleased for her. And then she's talking to Ahmed and, and seems much more friendly toward him. And as he's leaving, she says, What's the matter? And then looks directly at the camera and says, Haven't you ever seen a TARDIS before? Now, that raises a bunch of questions, because clearly Mrs. Flood knows what a TARDIS is, but she did not recognise the TARDIS as the Doctor's TARDIS, or even as a TARDIS when she first saw it. She thought it was a police box, which means she has not travelled with the Doctor before, which means she is not Susan, the Doctor's granddaughter, which is everybody's first guess whenever a mysterious female character appears. She can't the Doctor's granddaughter because surely if she was Susan she would recognise the TARDIS as a police box. For those of you who are not in the loop, the TARDIS only looks like a, a police box because its chameleon circuit is broken. The idea is that a TARDIS can change its appearance in order to blend in with its surroundings but the TARDIS, the Doctor's TARDIS, is stuck in police box mode. But once she sees it in action then Mrs Flood knows what a TARDIS is and means she must be familiar with the whole TARDIS, time and relative dimensions in space thing that's going on. This has led to a great deal of fan speculation. Some people clearly think that she's Susan. Some people think that she must be the Rani, who is the other name that gets thrown about when people want to decide who a mysterious female character might be. I'm going to speculate that she's neither of those people and that she is in fact going to be a new character. I do think it's inconceivable that we won't see her again. She's too big a name, in this country at least, to just be a cameo in the Christmas special. If you're going to put Anita Dobson in the Christmas special just to be a big name in the Christmas special, she'd have had a bigger part. So I suspect that along with Rose and Shirley, the science advisor, we're going to see Mrs. Flood again in season one. Will she be friend? Will she be foe? Will she be neither? We don't know. And again, just another brilliant question that we're left asking at the end of this Christmas special. So that's that's all that. Now, what didn't I like? What well, didn't like the singing? We've already established that. Ah, there's just a, a couple of other niggly things, and it's it's entirely paperwork, really. It's housekeeping. It's very clear that Disney Plus want to treat season one, episode one, as they're calling it, as the start of the thing. So in some senses this special is just as much filler as the three previous specials which is why i suspect on disney plus it's called special number 4 which does mean that this doctor the 15th doctor the shooty Gatwa doctor isn't really getting a big st- set, a big start a big setup he's you know he, he appeared halfway through the previous doctors finale so that wasn't his show and now is sort of at the helm for this, but it doesn't really feel like we've got started. And then episode one of the next season will be his big launch, but he'll already be established. I don't know. I mean, it does mean we're missing out on a few things that have become a bit cliched and a bit boring. So, you know, we're not going to have to deal with the Doctor having sort of a regeneration crisis. That's in the past, that's done. He's established as the Doctor before his first episode. Well, that, that's good, because that was, that was getting dull. also means we're not going to have like a, a long episode where he figures out who he is. Yeah, the whole fish fingers and custard thing. Because that's established. We know who this Doctor is. But, you know, he, so he does get to hit the ground running in that way. It, it, yeah. I guess I, I'm still a little bit spooked by the whole this Doctor didn't get to be something special reaction that the regeneration got, because I do feel that, again, this doctor doesn't doesn't seem to get to make his grand entrance. And again, for a writer and a showrunner like Russell T. Davies, who is so aware of the importance of representation and so aware of the importance of sending the right kind of signals, I mean, he's been very clear that he is aware of these kinds of things, that, that he's seemingly so careless of these beats just just sits slightly wrong with me and I'm sure I'm sure that once we get going and once the new season of Doctor Who starts I am sure that all of this will iron out and it'll be fine but just at the moment it leaves me feeling a little on edge but still you know everything is very much largely positive positive. Uh, just one thing that I haven't mentioned. We, well, I've, I've mentioned the Doctor's Sonic Screwdriver. I haven't mentioned the new design. I noticed in the last three specials that the 14th Doctor was using a new Sonic Screwdriver design, similar to the old 10th Doctor design, but still a bit different, and certainly different to the 13th Doctor's Sonic Screwdriver. 15th Doctor has his own, and it's the least screwdriver Sonic Screwdriver that we've seen for a while. For a start. It's not a variation on a stick. All the other sonic screwdrivers since the Ninth Doctor came back have been vaguely sticky, a bit sort of magic wandy, if you like. This, this looks like a phone from the early 2000s, and it's a weird sort of ergonomic shape, uh, quite flat with buttons on it. And if you told me it was like a, a Nokia from 2001, I'd believe you, frankly. It's nice. I like it. Uh, The buttons have um, a little Gallifreyan proverb, or at least it's a Rwandan proverb, but it's written in circular Gallifreyan, which again, I like. Big fan of circular Gallifreyan. It's a a cool looking language. I'm reliably informed by a video done by Shuti Gatwa that the proverb reads, the sharpness of the tongue beats the sharpness of the warrior, which is, as again I am assured by Shuti Gatwa, a Rwandan proverb. One that is quite doctory in its feel. So I like it. It looks cool. Something else that struck me as particularly cool was the range of outfits that Gatwal wears. I think over the course of this special, I think you see him in three or possibly four separate outfits, including a, k- a kilt and a very long tan leather coat. And he looks pretty darn spiffing in all of them. And then in the in the trailer for season one, we get to see him in all kinds of different gear. I mean, the, the, uh, the sharp suit and the afro, we've seen pictures of before, but also pictures of him in 18th century dress and, and all that kind of thing. Something that's been missing from Doctor Who for a while is the Doctor changing the way they dress in order to fit in. Yeah, it's something that Tennant never did something that Whitaker never did. Um, there was a little bit of that with Capaldi, maybe. And, you know, I get it. it. It helps with continuity, if nothing else. And obviously, this is a kid's show. And if the, the central character wears the same thing all the time, it makes them instantly recognisable. Who can forget Tom Baker's scarf? But it's nice to see the Doctor switching it up and changing it around a little bit. And to be honest, it's, it's kind of nice to see Gatworth being given that scope, because... This is a young man who can certainly wear a range of costumes. He looks pretty much good in everything. In fact, to be honest, he would look pretty good in a Hessian sack, I suspect. So from a design point of view, when you've got somebody who looks good in everything, give them everything. So that's a that's a nice departure from recent tradition, which I hope is maintained. I mean, again, it, it perhaps speaks to the increased budget that they're getting from the association with Disney, because obviously more costumes means more costs. But I think I think we may have a style icon of a doctor on our hands here. Something else that I' I'm, I'm not sure if it's cool, but I'm going to note it in passing. Uh, there was a mention of mavity rather than gravity again in this show, which means that that was not a mere throwaway joke. And it leads me into the final thing I want to get into as far as this review goes, which is Russell T. Davis's determination to acknowledge the past. Mavity is a joke from the recent specials, but it's a joke that predates Shooty Gatwa, which means that however much Disney might want season one, episode one, to be the start of a clean slate for the character, clearly Russell T. Davis, a showrunner, has got other ideas, because not only did we get the Mavity running gag, we also, ugh, running gag probably the wrong word for it, isn't it? But anyway, we also had reference in the Christmas special to the fact that the Doctor is adopted, which takes us back again to the Timeless Child and all of that kind of thing. And and we saw some of this in the three previous specials. And to see it cemented in what has to be considered the start of the Gatwa era is reassuring because there were a lot of people in certain parts of the fandom who... Were sort of heralding the, uh, the the rearrival of Russell T. Davis as showrunner and the end of the Chibnall era as a line being drawn under all of the things about the Chibnall era, and to a degree the Moffat era, that that section of fandom didn't like. And several times now, RTD has made it very, very clear that no, whilst this is a new Doctor and a new start in the sense that the new doctor is always a new start. Historically, that's always been the case. Everything that happened before still happened, whether we like it or not. So, flux still happened, half the universe still gone. The timeless child thing with the doctor being found by Tactaeon at the edge of the universe by a portal still a thing. The doctor, therefore, not being from Gallifrey and Having been the thing, the person, the creature, the being, whatever you want to call the Doctor, that brought regeneration to the Gallifreyans and made the ruling class of Gallifreyans Time Lords, that is still canon. That that all remains. The whole thing with the division and the fugitive Doctor, that's still a thing. And you know, and the fact, to be honest, that that's been worked in so securely now into the the the, the bond between the Doctor and Ruby kind of definitely cements all of that as very firmly part of the law. And I like that, I think. I mean, I, I will be honest. I am not a big fan of the whole Timeless Child concept. I didn't really like the episode that introduced The Division and and all of that. And I was definitely not a big fan of Flux, although yeah, I don't really blame Chibnall for that. I think uh, the issues with Flux were, were largely down to the fact that they filmed it during COVID and there were compromises that you had to make in order to get it done. And, you know, that's hugely unfortunate and a massive shame that so many things were affected by COVID in that way. And let's be honest, it's not the worst thing that happened during COVID. So, you know, it is it is what it is. But you know what? I'm not a huge fan of several things that happened in the past in real life. And we can't change those either. And that's, I think, something that Doctor Who has always stuck by. The past is the past and it happened. And we might be time travelers, but we can't go back and just change things. So so I like that we're, we're sticking with this. We're dealing with it and we're moving on, but we're moving on influenced by those things that have happened, much like real life itself. And I think that I've talked about Doctor Who now for nearly three quarters of an hour. I think it's probably time that we move on. And I talk about something else in this festive interregnal period. So, um, yeah, we'll leave that there for now, shall we? But since I've taken up all of that time talking about Doctor Who, we don't really have a huge time. For very much else. So what we'll do is finish off the review. I sort of half-heartedly started last week. Regarding Indiana Jones and The Dead of Destiny. Because I've now watched all of it. And honestly, I've changed my mind. Last time I mentioned this movie. The, I have to acknowledge, fifth in the Indiana Jones quintilogy. Is that the word? I'd only watched the first hour and I was kind of underwhelmed. I, I, I kind of thought, well, you know, it's fine. But at the same time, yeah, there's nothing particularly special about it. It's a shame that indie goes out with such a whimper, really. But I was bored the other night. I'd run out of things to watch. And so I figured I'd watch the end. And you know what? It gets better. I, I stand by what I said last week. I, I still don't like the de-aging at the beginning of the film, I think it, make, it makes Harrison Ford a bit uncanny valley. I, I, I'm not; I, it doesn't really work. And um, I get why they did it. I just think they could have been cleverer about it. I think one of the problems maybe that they had was they had the budget to do the CGI, and so they did all the CGI. I think if they'd had a smaller budget and they'd needed to skimp a little bit on the CGI, I think we might perhaps have had fewer long lingering shots on the younger Indiana Jones's face and therefore less need for the Uncanny Valley de-aging technology. But whilst it is the case that I can't remember the name of any of the new characters. Phoebe Waller-Bridge was great, but I can't remember what her character's called. The kid, the sidekick, who's like the modern short round. I can only think of him as the modern short round. I don't actually know the name of the character. So that suggests that the characters are... Well, I suppose, does it suggest, I was going to say, that that suggests the characters are a little bit less memorable than they were in the classic indie movies. Actually, does it mean that? Or does it mean that when I saw the classic indie movies, I was a teenager and now I'm in my 50s and I pay less attention and I've got less, less good a memory? Might just be that. But as the story progresses, there is a lot to like. I like that Indiana Jones, as he's grown older, has become quite responsible. And the contrast between old Indy and his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, is striking. She is now young and cynical and irresponsible. And he's the cautious old man who is trying really hard to keep everybody out of trouble and make sure the world doesn't end. Whilst I would be surprised if there were to be a sequel to this, Featuring Phoebe Waller-Bridge as the as the central character doing her archaeology grave robbery thing, uh, there was a sense actually that a torch was being passed here, which was satisfying. And I think, oh, hang on, there are going to be spoilers, so I'll I'll just chuck the horn in again. Spoilers! Spoilers! I think I think the very end where. Marion comes back and, yeah, you know, the gang leave them alone. And the last thing we see is the hat being snagged off the washing line. That's a nice place to leave Indy, the sense that he's at peace, things are sorted, but he's not necessarily hung up his hat. I think that's a nice place to leave Indy. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad for that. And I think also after the Crystal School, which... Look, I've been refusing to acknowledge the existence of the Crystal School since it came out. So suffice to say, I didn't like it. But after the Crystal School, I think this villain getting the Nazis back as villains was, again, a nice return to Indiana Jones heritage, if you like. And I liked the fact that, OK, it's pseudoscience at best and science as magic really but there was an insistence that this is not magic this time travel thing is just maths it's just mathematics and this is a comedies and everything is about reason that's again a nice return to what indie's always been you yeah, have the magic's there but indie refuses to accept that that's what it is I, I liked that That was great. I thought the time travel thing was fun, actually. I really appreciated seeing the scholar in Doctor Jones uh, when they finally meet Archimedes. And they just hold a conversation in ancient Greek because of course Indy speaks it. Of course he does. And it shouldn't really surprise anybody. He is who he is. He could always hold that conversation in ancient greek he's a very good scholar he's a very good academic he's a very good archaeologist and in order to do the job that he's done for the last well this is the 1960s now i suppose so the first indie movies are set in the 30s he's been at this for at least 30 years longer probably he couldn't have done that job if he didn't speak ancient greek so that was maybe a joke about his accent might have been fun but Never mind. And I liked that Phoebe Waller-Bridge, can also, her character could also do this, just not as well. I, I, that was a nice touch. She's not him yet, but she might be him. So in the grand scheme of things, is it as good as Raiders? No, of course it isn't. But that's not really, that's not really a slight, because almost nothing is as good as Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's probably on the level of Temple of Doom, it's maybe not as good as Last Crusade, um, but, well, Crystal Skull is not even in the same ballpark. So it's, it's a decent indie movie, and I, I do like the yeah, edit. There's been some ridicule of the fact that they tried to make an action movie with an 81-year-old star. Actually, that's good, surely, isn't it? Just because indie is old doesn't mean he's useless doesn't mean he needs to be put out to pasture. Far, far from it. I thought that was good to see. I was relieved that they didn't try to give him a romantic toaster. Um, making the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character his goddaughter, I think, was the best choice. Because, seriously, that would have been... Mm. And it was good to see Marion again. And I, although I didn't hate Shia LaBeouf, or however you're pronouncing that these days, as Indy's son in Crystal School. I, I, I don't know whether LeBeuf simply wasn't available or whether he wasn't invited to the party, uh, but I think the way they chose to write him out, I think that works too. And yes, of course, that character would have done that to piss off his dad. Of course he would have done that. So so, so that, that worked. And also... There was some emotional impact in that. Now, it wasn't the motivation for anything that Indy is doing, but it did have believable consequences, which again, it's good to see. And I, I think actually that's maybe the best thing about this movie in that it does very clearly acknowledge the arc of a life. We have seen five incidents now in the life of Indiana Jones, but it's very clear. That there was a lot more to Indy's life than that, and yeah, I know we've had the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles and all of that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm, I'm, discounting that, but it's those five films as a, as a block. Kind of do give you the life of a really, really swashbuckling and engaging character, and I also think it's good that the later installments kind of acknowledge that the kind of archaeologist that Indy was in the 30s is, how shall I put this, not best practice? And, you know, there are genuine problems with the way that Indy conducted himself in the past. So, you know, I think you see his discomfort with the way his Goddaughter behaves kind of demonstrating that attitudes and practice has moved on since he was a young, swashbuckling archaeologist back in the day. So, all things considered, yeah, I take it back. I mean, is it five out of five stars? No, but it's a comfortable three. Might even push a three and a half if I was feeling particularly generous. And that's that's not bad, and that's better than the internet says it was. So, as is so often the case, perhaps take the internet's view with a slight pinch of salt. Ultimately, it is what it should be. It's a fun, dumb action movie with engaging characters and headed up by a guy we all really like. And I think everybody loves Indiana Jones, don't they? I mean, 42 years after Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I'm still wearing a hat. I even learned how to use a bullwhip. I mean, I doubt I still could, but I did learn. Because when I was a kid, I wanted to be Indiana Jones even more than I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. And I think, if I'm honest, I still kind of want to be Indiana Jones. Even old Indiana Jones. And honestly, with my niece, seriously. As was the case with quite a lot of Doctor Who recently, I do wonder if younger viewers feel the same. Um, How much of the reason I liked this movie in the end, was pure nostalgia? I, I don't know. And of course, now I think about it, that might be why I'm not completely sure with the direction of New Who, because New Who, there's no nostalgia in it for me now. It's, it's moved on to that extent. And yeah, oh, there's a thing to think about. Not relevant here, mind you. So back to Indy. I think in the end, as an, as an old geezer like I am, one of the reasons I loved this movie in the end was that the people who made it clearly have the same amount of affection for the character of Indy as I do. And I think that affection was very easy to see on the screen. And for that reason, I think it shines more brightly than the script merits. And with that, time to move on. Now, what I would normally do at this stage is have a look forward to what's happening in 2023. But the honest truth is, I don't really know uh, there are some movies coming out from, well, not from Marvel, actually, from Sony. Uh, there's the Madame Web movie. There's another Venom movie coming out. There's the Craven the Hunter movie. And I have to confess, I am absolutely not excited about any of them. We're not really expecting any great DC releases, and I don't think. Uh, we can expect to hear more about James Gunn's Superman Legacy. I believe they've cast Alex Luthor. I don't have the name of the actor they've cast in front of me, and he's somebody I'd never heard of, which means he's probably quite famous, but I don't know who he is. And I imagine there'll be more of that sort of thing coming through next year. Um, I think it's fair to say that 2023 has not really been, to my way of thinking, a vintage year for Geek. I uh, It seems that Rebel Moon has not lived up to Snyder's claims that it'll be the, you know, the new Star Wars. Uh, even Star Wars struggles to be the new Star Wars these days, so I suppose he was always writing checks that his movies probably wouldn't be able to cash. Marvel's output this year hasn't been particularly brilliant. I, I did love the Marvels, uh, but there's a- Loki season two didn't set me on fire, and um, from my point of view, the less said about Secret Invasion, the better. That said, we had uh, a great season Of Star Trek Strange New Worlds and the uh, Picard Season 3 or the um, Star Trek The Next Generation Reunion Tour, as you might also want to call it, were brilliant. So, you know, Star Trek remains in great health at the end of 2023. Season 3 of Strange New Worlds is shooting now, so hopefully we'll have that towards the end of 2024. DC was well lacklustre in 2023 I think it's fair to say movie-wise at least comics wise no but movie-wise it was uh, it, it had a high point Blue Beetle was pretty good and I suppose perhaps the thing DC fans can take solace from at the end of 2023 is that they finally put the DC EU out of its misery and yeah the next thing we get movie-wise from DC will be something completely new and untainted by the whole DCEU debacle. Marvel movies seem to have lost some of their luster in 2023. I think that was always going to happen. I think Marvel was losing confidence anyway in the whole movie side of things. And the whole thing with Kang, as reported over the last few weeks, really hasn't helped that. I hope the MCU kind of finds its old swagger and gets its old form back in 2024. I certainly don't see any reason why it couldn't. I I think the biggest change in 2023 in terms of geekness has been the shift in social media, which seems to have become significantly less important to a great number of people. Twitter is on its knees at the moment, Whether it will bounce back, it's not looking likely. Whether anything will ever replace it and become what Twitter was, uh, again, I don't think so. Smart money is on on Blue Sky doing something, but will it ever be what Twitter was? Probably not. I think that ship has sailed and that moment has passed. We shall see. 2024 awaits. And there are 52 editions of Geeking with Destination Venus to come in 2024 hopefully we'll have something cool and fun to report on and hopefully you'll all see fit to keep joining us every week to find out what that is i'm always looking for ways to improve the show so hopefully there'll be some developments on that front over the next few weeks and months as well if you have any suggestions about what those changes should be info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the address to send those ideas to also, if you have a geeky event planned that you'd like some publicity for, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is where to send the details. The Geek Community Notice Board is at your disposal. So if you've got stuff going on, let us know. But for now, all that's left for me today do is to tell you that geeking with Destination Venus, as ever, is a Venus Rising media production. Proudly made in Harrogate. Thanks for being with us over the last 12 months. We will see you in the new year when we will have more news, views and reviews from the world of geek. We'll have more breakthroughs in space, more breakthroughs in science and everything that's happening in the world of passion, beauty and joy. That is the world of geek. We look forward to sharing it all with you. But until then, as the last days of 2023 slip away. And the old year changes into something new and exciting. Just remember to be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay geeky. We will see you once Big Ben has donged, once the fireworks have banged, and, rather crucially, when all of you who still drink have gotten over the New Year hangover. The first episode of Geeking with Destination Venus hits the airwaves on Thursday, the 4th of January. We look forward to seeing you then. Until then, take care.